Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis in dentistry can be complex, and current guidelines date back to 2007. A recent statement from the American Heart Association has added to the discussion. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence, and your program host. With me today to share their experience and insights are Dr. Jason Goodchild, Vice President of Clinical Affairs at Premier Dental Products Company, and my Vizient colleague, Dr. Mark Donaldson, Associate Principal in Pharmacy Advisory Solutions. Welcome to both of you. Hi, Gretchen. It's nice to be here. Thanks for in- including us in this important process. Let's start off by defining things. Why is antibiotic prophylaxis against infective endocarditis an important tool in dental medicine? Infective endocarditis is an infection of the lining of the heart, the endocardium, and usually also the heart valves. Infective endocarditis occurs when bacteria enter the bloodstream and travel when attached to often a previously injured heart valve. Entry points can be simply brushing your teeth, and we know that's theoretically possible for bacteria to get into the bloodstream following a normal tooth brushing. But in dentistry, we're talking about manipulation of soft tissue and the bacteria getting into the bloodstream via the injured site we're working on. Known since 2007, when the last American Heart Association guidelines came out for the prevention of infective endocarditis, that the use of antibiotics for those high-risk patients is a very important tool to help prevent infection. We've had that playbook that can start with amoxicillin, then clindamycin, and then azithromycin for folks that can take oral medicines. We generally give those medicines about an hour before the procedure. Jason, what are the risks of over or underutilization of this treatment modality? Let me start with the over first, because we're all very sensitive nowadays to the over-prescribing of antibiotics. We know that things like super infections, fungal or viral infections, or development of resistant organisms can occur with over-prescribing. The prudent practitioner is always looking for opportunities to give the right drug to the right patient, but also knowing who not to give them to. And the American Heart Association guidelines now has four patient populations that we recommend giving infective endocarditis prophylaxis to. For the folks that are fall onto that list, what is the risk of not giving the right drug to the right patient? Infective endocarditis carries a significant mortality risk for infections with staph aureus. It can be 30 to 40% mortality rate for patients, slightly less for streptococci, but still a very significant mortality risk. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the guidelines? Yeah, these guidelines have actually been in place since 1955. That was when the first iteration came. It's also one of those issues where it's not necessarily the American Heart Association in and of themselves putting the guidelines together, but they have partnered with other think tank organizations, the American Dental Association, the Infectious Disease Society of America, also known as the IDSA, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Each of these professional organizations provides experts in these areas that come together and ruminate on the development of guidelines and the change of the guidelines. Since 1955, the guidelines have gone through nine different iterations, with the most recent guidelines being released in 2007. Over the years, there has been at least one common theme, and out of the entire pool of patients in whom we believe they had some potential risk for development of infective endocarditis, we have honed down that population to really just four compelling indications. Where we used to prophylax a large swath of the general population, we now confine our prescribing of infective endocarditis prophylaxis to only four patient populations thought to be at highest risk. Those would be patients with a prosthetic cardiac valve or cardiac material in situ, 
patients with a previous relapse or recurrent infective endocarditis history, patients with congenital heart disease, and then cardiac transplant patients who develop cardiac valvulopathy. Outside of that, we really aren't prophylaxing very many patients anymore. These most recent guidelines in 2007 reduced the number of patients in whom we had prescribed prophylaxis in the past by 90%. So we certainly have targeted a much smaller population. The other general theme, just from a pharmacy standpoint, I think is interesting, is that where the initial guidelines might have suggested IV or intramuscular antibiotics for several days prior to the appointment and even several days after the appointment, as Dr. Goodchild mentioned, the current guidelines from 2007 have really simplified this to a single oral dose of medications, antibiotics typically given one hour prior to the procedure, that being amoxicillin or as alternates, clindamycin or azithromycin. That context is helpful. Thank you. I understand a new statement has been released recently. Jason, how does that impact things moving forward? In 2021, the three suggestions from the new American Heart Association statement were to reinforce the 2007 guidelines. This was a statement, not something to replace the current guidelines. The second new wrinkle was the idea that we should discontinue or discourage the use of clindamycin. That has typically been either first line or second line in our current guideline from 07, but also from the orthopedic guidelines and other guidelines as well. So a very common antibiotic in dentistry. And then the third suggestion was to replace clindamycin with doxycycline. That was really very surprising, the idea of withholding a very important drug in dentistry, naming clindamycin, which would be our second-line drug for folks that can't take a beta-lactam or a penicillin drug, and then replacing it with an otherwise not-seen drug, doxycycline. Mark, why would they suggest that clinicians consider doxycycline as an alternative to clindamycin in these penicillin-allergic patients? You and I both know it, certainly as pharmacists, that the doxycycline could be an alternative for patients who are unable to tolerate a penicillin, cephalosporin, or macrolide. But to date, there is actually no scientific evidence to support the effectiveness of doxycycline for endocarditis prophylaxis in humans, which is what we're talking about today. In patients who are undergoing dental procedures and may be at highest risk for the development of infective endocarditis, the guidelines are clear. Amoxicillin, clindamycin, azithromycin, but no data to date shows that doxycycline, while it can be used as an alternative in other infectious processes for those agents, really has not been seen as being an alternative for the uh, prophylaxis of endocarditis. One of the most referenced studies, which is an animal study done in rats, did test the protection for infective endocarditis in rats with three antibiotics, clindamycin, erythromycin, and doxycycline. And only clindamycin was fully effective against all three species of streptococcus at doses that simulated serum levels achievable in humans after oral administration. So we definitely have great data in support of clindamycin being effective, but in humans, no data to support doxycycline as being an alternative. The other challenge, just from more of a a hardcore pharmacological standpoint, is doxycycline and clindamycin are bacteriostatic agents, which is probably why clindamycin continues to be relegated as an alternative. The drug of first choice is usually a penicillin or a cephalosporin, again, the idea of amoxicillin or perhaps alternatively cephalexin or keflex. The microbiological definition of bactericidal agents is that they are able to kill 99.9% of an inoculum, whereas bacteriostatic agents within a 24-hour period may only kill between 90 and 99% of that inoculum. 
it is possible, depending on the bacterial density, test duration, growth conditions, extent of bacterial numbers, for some bacteriostatic antibiotics to actually become bactericidal. And clindamycin is one of those. Clindamycin can be considered bactericidal in clinical situations such as endocarditis, given the typical offending pathogens most associated with the disease. This is not true of doxycycline. It is very surprising this panel of experts in this most recent statement, not a guideline statement, are suggesting that doxycycline could be considered an alternative for Clinda. They don't just suggest doxycycline, but they suggest doxycycline at a 100 milligram dose. And what's interesting about that is if you prophylax with amoxicillin, the recommended dose is 2,000 milligrams, four times the usual dose that we would give patients for an infection. Clindamycin, similarly, the guidelines say to give 600 milligrams as a one-time dose, and that's about four times the usual dose of clindamycin. These panel of experts are recommending doxycycline not at four times its usual dose, but at that typical 100 milligram dose. I'm just unclear, and they have not provided citations or reference in support of doxycycline being used as an alternative for endocarditis prophylaxis, and certainly not at that this very low 100 milligram dose. And what about the call to abandon clindamycin? What's the rationale there? This is something that has been in the consciousness of the general public, as well as prescribers for a lot of years. Maybe it's more of an urban legend since it really hasn't been proven that clindamycin is one of the more dangerous, if I can be emphatic that way, antibiotics that we have. In other words, the side effect profile of clindamycin may not necessarily be as popular as the, the side effect profile of other antibiotics. The problem is that if you go back to the original data, time and time again, clindamycin, when we take a look at the incidence of Clostridium difficile secondarily to antibiotic administration, clindamycin always falls in the middle. In other words, it's not necessarily the worst and it's not necessarily the best. But certainly there are a lot of prescribers who feel that clindamycin, just based on gut feel, is considered to be the least desirable option because of the potential side effects. Although those side effects, again, are very common with our other antibiotics too. And how does it compare to other agents? We do know that there are side effects associated with all antibiotics. We consider this particular level of risk to be multifactorial. In other words, it's a continuum. And if patients have risk factors, they may be at higher risk for some of these side effects. You can look at a patient's increasing age, severity of underlying diseases, malignant hematologic disorders, non-surgical uh, GI or gastrointestinal procedures, uh, whether they have a nasogastric tube in place, concurrent anti-ulcer medications, length of stay in the ICU. I mean, there's a number of these different risk factors that may confer a, a higher risk associated with side effects and antibiotics. A meta-analysis, which was done in the Journal of Hospital Infection that showed within 95% confidence intervals, most antibiotics fell into the same category. This primary literature showed that clindamycin wasn't necessarily any worse than or better than all of the other antibiotics. So I don't think singling it out is really a good interpretation of that data. And that data has been reviewed multiple times, showing that while there may be some antibiotics considered to be bad actors, this type of adverse event, which could be a clostridium difficile colitis or a toxic megacolon can in fact occur with many of our antibiotics, not just uh, clindamycin. It really is curious that the authors of this American Heart Association scientific statement, not a guideline, but a scientific statement, targeted clindamycin, but didn't actually highlight the safety concerns of some of the other currently recommended antibiotics. If the primary literature shows that amoxicillin, azithromycin, 
may be just as fallible as clindamycin. Why didn't they get called out as well? Specifically, this is one of the concerns. There's also another study by Clemens and Rasinoff that estimated the death rate associated with oral penicillin is about 0.9 deaths per 1 million courses, primarily, of course, from prophylaxis. Less well-documented, but assumed to be about the same for amoxicillin. For clindamycin, it's pretty much in that same ballpark, as well as cephalosporins, estimating to be about a serious fatal anaphylaxis, around about one patient per one million cases. Thank you for shedding some light on that. Jason, what's the bottom line for our listeners here? First and foremost, for my dental colleagues, I hope that they understand that the current guidelines for antibiotic prophylaxis, infective endocarditis, come from 2007. And this new publication is just what it says it is, a statement, not a guideline. In fact, the conclusion from this statement actually reads, on the basis of a review of the available evidence, there are no recommended changes to the 2007 infective endocarditis prevention guidelines. There's 190,000 dentists in the United States and 150,000 of them are general practitioners and they're doing routine dentistry all day long. Your fillings in your crowns and your root canals and your simple extractions where manipulation of tissue occurs and bacteria can get into the bloodstream. But these hopefully are minor surgeries and we're looking to follow clear guidelines, almost cookbook style that help point us in the right direction. And then it's important to understand that the AHA's recent statement, two of the three recommendations lack the evidence base that we're really looking for. The idea that clindamycin should be withdrawn and replaced with doxycycline. We just need to remember that the current guidelines really come from 2007. Jason and Mark, thank you so much for joining us today to share your insights and expertise. It's been great having you. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.